to a ten-plague plan. God had said in advance, before this all began, that it was really going to come down uh, to this final plague, but we've watched as the story has progressed, as Pharaoh has hardened his heart, as God has demonstrated his power as creator, demonstrated his power over the Egyptian pantheon, um, demonstrated the uniqueness of the God of Israel, and um, this last plague is set apart. And we've already seen that in weeks past a little bit just by the way that the first nine were organized into three sets of three. All the first ones beginning with a meeting with Pharaoh in the morning. All the third ones being brought on without warning. Right There was a cycle and it was a building cycle. And So after the sixth plague and before the seventh, eighth, and ninth, there was a pause and an escalation and a warning that what was coming was going to not just cost um, you know, convenience, but actually begin to cost lives. And yet Pharaoh stubbornly resists and resists. And so now we come to, if you will, the final act. And I want you to notice as we read tonight um, that the text is, is tremendously interwoven between three things. And so we have the tenth plague. We have instructions for Passover and um, the festival of unleavened bread, this future-oriented remembrance of a present tense phenomenon. Um, and, and then third, related to that, uh, we'll see in the midst of that Passover, there is what we'll call tonight the Egyptian Passover, the one they're actually going to celebrate that leads up to the plague, the one that's of this event. But it's interwoven with the practice of this when you get into the land. And it's going to feel like we're jumping around a lot. And, and it seems to me that that's intentional. So I want to just draw your attention to it. Um, now, when we pick up in verse 1 uh, of chapter 11, it's worth pointing out um, two things. First off, you may remember at the end of chapter 10, uh, Moses and Pharaoh are done talking. Pharaoh has said, if I ever see your face again, I'll kill you. And, and Moses responds, that's right, you'll never see my face again. That can be a little bit jarring when we pick up um, back in, in verse 4 and Moses is once again addressing Pharaoh, but that's just the chapter break getting in the way. He agrees with Pharaoh, but he hasn't left yet. But there is a hiatus here. There is a pause because, like I said, we're making this big transition. The second thing I want you to know about chapter 11, verse 1, um, in, in the Hebrew, sometimes the tense is ambiguous. And so here it says, then, or then it says, the Lord said to Moses, but this can also be translated, the Lord had said to Moses, and I would argue that that's a better translation tonight. If you read it with me, you'll see why. The Lord had said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. And so there's this little interruption. If we were to just to delete that and go straight from uh, 1029, Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again, verse 4. So Moses said, uh, it, would, it would be smooth. We wouldn't even notice the material was missing. 
And this is the first place where it starts to, like I said, interweave these multiple things going on. And so it takes time here to talk about how Moses was seen by the Egyptians and by the Israelites. Did you notice that in verse 3? It says, moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. That's reminding us here uh, of basically where the stakes are at. Israel at this point is no longer frustrated with Moses for making things worse. He's evidently representing God. Israel is on board. They've watched not only as these miraculous things have happened, but also as God has drawn this delineation between Moses' people, the people of Israel, and the Egyptians. And so the plagues were separated in that way. And so it tells us that. And then another thing that it tells us here is that this is all going to go down very quickly. He, God had said to Moses, this is the last plague, and when it's done, look there at uh, verse 1, when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. What's been the issue so far in the plagues? What's the great phrase of Moses? Let my people go, right? It's asking for permission. What it says here is that Pharaoh is going to drive them out, okay, that he's going to command them to leave. It's a completely different posture. And so it's in this recognition that this is dropped here in verse 2 that now, read that word now, verse 2, speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of his neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And so here's, here's what this is saying. Before they rush you out, before they usher you into the streets, before they drive you out of Egypt in droves, you need to do this other thing we've talked about. In fact, it's been mentioned earlier in it, they were supposed to ask their Egyptian neighbors for jewelry. And when we read this, especially because later on it will, it will refer to this as plundering the Egyptians, one of the ways to read this is that they say, hey, we're having a festival, I'd like to look nice, I'd like to put on some nice jewelry, I'm just a slave, can I borrow you know, your tennis bracelet? And then it sounds totally deceptive, right? Because they're not coming back. But as we've seen throughout the story, Pharaoh knows they're not coming back. Moses knows they're not coming back. Egypt knows they're not coming back. A better way to read this, even though it mentions this idea of plunder, a better way to read this is that they sympathize with the Jews. That they get it now. That they are recognizing the fact that God is on the side of these people they've taken advantage of. Okay? And that's what it says here, that God worked in their hearts, so what? He gave the people favor inside of the Egyptians. They're open and willing to participate in this. So why later does it say that they plundered the Egyptians? It's not their deception, it's the recognition that, these, uh, that this is um, recompensation. It's recognition that the unpaid wages of this slave race, the Jews, are being some way compensated in this action, okay? And so it lays all these details down, and then it jumps right back into the action in verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Okay, and so here the plague is stated, at midnight, on a particular night, 
all the firstborns are going to die. And it says from high to low, from the court of Pharaoh to the handmaid, just her son. And just recognize for a second that that's probably bigger than you're thinking at first glance. Because that's not one person per family. Okay? You have to recognize that sometimes a father is a firstborn. Right? And so, so in the lineage of family, every generation has a firstborn. Uh, and so the, the death toll would be striking. Later on, it's going to say there isn't a single home where they don't experience death in all of Egypt. And then it adds on top of that that it's not just going to be the men of Egypt, but also their cattle. Okay? This is tremendously devastating, and it's worth asking why. And there's a few things that we should review here. Um, the first is, this whole episode of the Exodus has been set up as a battle between who has the rights over the firstborn Israel. Not the firstborn of Israel, the firstborn Israel. Back in chapter 4, God speaking through Moses says, my people are my firstborn. Okay, it takes this image of the firstborn child and it applies it to the entire nation of Israel. Okay. And so there's a battle here going on for the firstborn. Second, we have to recognize that this is absolutely horrific. It really is. And it it might even be easy to look at it at a glance and go, how is this fair? Some of the Egyptians have started to learn who God is. Some of them have had favor on the, uh, on the Jews with giving their gold and jewelry. Some of them had uh, chosen to believe in the reality of God and responded to the plagues. You may remember the plague of hail where it was just an announcement to all of Egypt. Anyone who brings their cattle inside, who stays out, out of the outdoors you know, on this day will not suffer any destruction. What is that? That's an opportunity for faith. Right? And so we'll see as well that many who leave with Israel are not Israelites. So there's this component of people, not just who sympathize with Israel, but have come to believe that the God of Israel is God. In fact, that was one of the stated purposes of the plagues, so that all of Egypt may know that I am the Lord. Then there's the fact that we watch as many in, uh, in Egypt are begging Pharaoh to change his stance on this issue, right? His court comes to him and goes, we don't have anything more to lose. You have to let them go. And so why is it that an entire nation suffers? Okay, the first thing I want you to recognize, just because it's a true principle, is leadership has consequence, And the first thing we should own up to the fact is there's a sense where you could look at this and recognize a lot of people suffer because of Pharaoh. And that's that's not just some sort of biblical justice issue. That's just life as we observe it all the time. It is the nature of leadership that it impacts your community for better or for worse. And the mistakes or the sins or the rebellion or the foolishness of leadership has direct bearing of the life of, its, of, of the people that they're leading. And doesn't this sometimes cost lives? Of course it does. Okay. But there's another thing involved in this, and that's that we're not just talking about circumstances. This isn't just, 
you know, uh, Noah as, uh, oh, that's ironic, working for Noah and expecting a tidal wave and coming to, you know, the government and saying, hey, we need to evacuate. And the guy goes, I'm not worried about that, right? And then a lot of lives are lost. This is clearly very different, right? This is God saying, this is what I, the God of the universe, the God of justice and goodness, this is what I'm going to do, okay? Now, we aren't ready to address that hurdle yet, but I think we should feel it because it's real, okay? This is a horrific happening. Now, let's keep reading. Verse 7, however... Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So death in all of the houses of Egypt, and then when it says not a dog will growl, that's either speaking of aggression. In other words, there will be no danger. You know, we like to say that a dog's bark is worse than its bite. Not even barking in Israel. Okay, that's, that may be what the expression means here. Or it's possible, some commentators believe that the idea here is that not even a dog will blame Israel for this. Okay, that they'll recognize that this is bigger than just being Israel's problem. I prefer the first interpretation, but I wanted to lay it out there. Um, and why does he say he's going to do this? So that you'll know that God is making a distinction between Israel and Egypt. Okay, now, once again, I think it's easy for us to call foul. It's bad enough here that we see God taking the lives of, let's just recognize, children of all ages, right? Firstborns may be 45, but they may be four months old. But here it says, also, I'm only taking your people, Pharaoh. Mine are all going to be safe. But that's not the whole story. He continues on here in verse 8, And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And so he says the last thing is, after this is done, they're going to be begging us to leave. And then he, he leaves, uh, and uh, he leaves in anger. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of the land. Now those are things we've read over and over again, but it summarizes it here because it's going to pause and transition. It brings us to the end of that story, closes it off, so we can talk about the Passover. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregations of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbors shall take according to the number of their persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly in the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. 
Now I'm going to come back and walk through this, but I want to get a little bit further so we get the full picture. Verse 7, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of their house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of the raw or boil, uh, eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. So let's let's go ahead and stop here. Recognize that what's being laid out here, like I said, is future oriented. Okay, and so now we're talking about a festival, a feast, that's going to observe the tradition of what's about to go down in Egypt. Okay, and so we have some dates on the calendar. First thing it says here is that this new feast, Passover, is going to be the new beginning of their year. Okay, what happens in the Exodus in Israel's history is so altering of their identity that it changes their calendar. He says, from now on, I want you to think of all of life as beginning annually right here with this festival. Okay? This is their New Year's festival in Passover. Um, and so the second thing he says here is that the whole congregation of Israel, one per household, needs to choose a lamb or a goat on the 10th of the month. Keep it till the 14th of the month. Kill it. And then eat it together. But notice some of the details it mentions here. Uh, first, verse 3, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. And so he says, every household a lamb. If your house is too small for a whole lamb... He doesn't say leftovers. He doesn't say, you know, traducan. He says, gather in another house, and now you all share a lamb. Okay? Why? See, what's easy to miss here, uh, it will become really apparent in a second, but what's easy to miss here is this is different than traditionally having ham for Easter. Okay? The lamb, in the sense of what's for dinner, is not the whole sum total point. And so there's a focus here on one lamb per household or making a bigger household. So it's one lamb per household. Why? So that the people will identify with that lamb. Okay. That's why. Not just lamb in general as the thing we eat, but that lamb. Okay. We'll come back to that in a second. Second. This lamb needs to have some standards. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. Now, when it says a year old here, this makes perfect sense because the time for, uh, for sheep and goats and such to reproduce and be born is right here. Okay? And so this is a year after last Passover season when the animals were born. That's what it's talking about. It says here that it will be without blemish. Um, that means that there's no discoloration in the fur. It means that there's no sort of um, open sore. It means that there's no sort of birthmark. It's, it's a very high standard that means visibly perfect. Okay? Imagine the ideal sheep, and that's what's required for this. Um, 
So it says, choose it on the 10th, and you shall keep it until the 14th of the month. Okay. Now, we have to wonder why. There's a couple of things. Okay. One reason may be that they, this is not supposed to be something like you're driving home and you go, oh, shoot, I forgot the lamb. I'll pick one up at the store on my way home. Okay. It might be that the, the time here is literally just because that's how thorough they're supposed to be. This is not something that's supposed to be last minute. It's preparatory. When they investigate the lamb, you know, they're, they're really going about it. Uh, one commentator that I read had an interesting point. He said, because it says here not just that they choose a lamb on day 10 and then go get it on the 14th, but choose it and bring it into the house and then slaughter it on the 14th, that means that there's some intimacy going on with this animal, okay? What would it be like if us in our dietary practices as modern Americans, brought home our dinner alive a week in advance and then fed it to our children. It'd be different, would it not? Right? You'd get to know the pig, you'd love the pig, you'd name the pig, and then you'd kill the pig. It may be that that's part of what's going on, that it's not just any old lamb, but one that they recognize the cost of. Okay? It's one of those two things. So, uh, it says here that they're supposed to kill the lambs at twilight. And then notice verse 7. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. Here's the first reference we get to this being more than dinner. Right? It says here that they're going to take the blood of that exact same lamb and they're going to paint it across the top and down the sides of their doorposts where they're having the meal. Okay? Now... I don't know about you, but that clearly, suddenly sounds more like sacrifice than it does dinner. And it's worth mentioning that throughout, uh, throughout the Jewish religion, those lines uh, get crossed pretty regularly. So, for example, there's the, um, there's the fellowship offering, which was actually a sacrifice that you would make and part of it would be burned on the altar to God and the rest of it would be consumed by the offerer and all of his guests. Okay? And the representation of that sacrifice was that you are in relationship with God. It was about as close as it comes to having God over for dinner. Okay? That's the idea in this offering. In the same way here, this happening has two parts that we've seen. One is that they're going to eat this lamb together, and the other is that there's this sacrificial connotation. There's something about the blood. So he continues here, verse 8, they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. So he lays out the whole menu here. Roasted lamb, unleavened bread, bitter herbs. Okay? It doesn't explain the significance of any of them, um, with the roasted lamb, it's going to go on and say in verse 9, Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner part. And so it gets very specific here. They're supposed to roast this lamb whole over the fire. Boiling won't do it. Okay? Most likely, there's two aspects that go into this. Um, one is, as we'll see, this whole meal is supposed to be like to go. Okay? 
They're, they're to be ready to go. They're going to come to the table, not ready for bed, but ready to be dressed. And the men are supposed to eat with their walking staffs in hand and their belt fully tightened, okay? And so roasting a lamb is probably the fastest method outside of raw, which it says not to eat because obviously, okay? Um, but boiling would take a lot longer, okay? But there's another thing involved here. As we're going to see, whatever's left over can't be left over. Any meat that's left over doesn't go in, you know, no fridge in those days, but doesn't go in the salt, doesn't come with them on the journey. No, uh, and I, with us, with holidays, right, that's part of the holidays, the leftover version, the sandwich version you eat the next day, right? That's not a here. And so the rest of the lamb goes back into the fire and is consumed totally. Most likely, that's once again pointing to this reality that this is not just dinner, but a sacrifice. If you look at the burnt offering, or sometimes it's called the whole burnt offering, the one that's recorded for us in Leviticus chapter 1, this was an offering that was to be consumed in its totality on the altar, all of it, okay? And so it has that same emphasis here. Um, And so it... uh, We'll come back to unleavened bread, and so we'll leave that. Notice what it says in verse 10. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn, as we just talked about, verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. Now, remember here, this is not just something they're going to do once, but something they're going to continue to do. I want you to think about that for a second. It means that when this Passover dinner is observed, when they get to the land of Canaan, they're going to have the same dinner, they're going to put the blood on the door again, and they're going to eat as if they're ready to leave. Okay? They don't just remember, they embody. Uh, But here, they're supposed to be all ready to go, and then it tells us why in verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Verse 13, the blood, remember the blood on the doorposts? The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay? And so what it says here is the blood will be a sign for you, and in a sense, it's a sign for me. He says, you put it on the door and you'll know. And then he says, I'll see it and I'll pass over, which is where this idea in the name Passover comes from. Okay? And so it says here, the, uh, the destroyer or the plague, it's as if it was coming down the street and it will see the blood and it will keep moving. Okay? Now we get into the interesting part. Just think about a few things tonight. Um, first off, recognize here, that this is not because God can't tell the difference between an Egyptian and an Israeli, right? In fact, the plagues have emphasized multiple occasions that God's capable of drawing a distinction between these two groups of people without any help whatsoever. Okay, so we have to ask, what's different here? And there is one difference that's worth pointing out right off the bat, and that is this. Every other plague is mediatorial in nature. God sends Moses, Moses holds out his staff, he speaks over, he throws soot into the air, 
not with Passover. Right? This is God coming into Egypt. This is God acting on Egypt. And so one thing we need to recognize is that the Bible maintains that that is always serious business. Okay? That the presence of God, if you will, changes the rules of the game. Why is there an entire holiness code and kosher laws and uh, status of clean, unclean, and holy? It's because God was dwelling in the tabernacle with these people, Israel, and they had to find a way to do that and live, right? We'll get into more of that as we get into later Exodus and the book of Leviticus. Um, but there's that reality that we're talking about the presence of God in the midst of Egypt, okay? But there's another thing I want, you to, point, I want to point out here. Here, what is it that spares Israel? Is it just because they're Jews? No, it's the blood. That's the only distinction. Where does death not happen? On the houses that are marked with blood. Like I said, this isn't some sort of secret sign so God knows who's inside. Right? It's a sacrifice. As God is going to go on to explain through Moses here, the firstborn of Israel, they're his property too. You see... Before we can answer the question, how can God do something like this, like taking the firstborns of all, uh, all of Egypt, we have to deal with the broader category that, that this is, this is um, not a place where the Bible draws a distinction between his people and not his people, between the good guy and the bad guy, between us and between them. The only thing that keeps the Jews alive in this reality is sacrifice, and that is by design. Right? Obviously. God gives instructions here. And then they go on to practice and participate and repeat and remember this. And what do they have to go through every time? Death passed over us because of the blood on the mantle. Every time. They have to remember. What makes them distinct? This is something that Moses reclarifies in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God just says, Why do you think I chose you, Israel? Is it because you were greater or larger than other people? He says, No, I chose you because of my loving kindness. But that's not merely a distinction, as in God has his people, his team, and then there's the other team. The only difference here between the house that's visited with death and the ones that's not, is the house that's not visited with death has already experienced a death, a sacrifice. Okay. Let's keep going. Verse 14, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And so, once again, just to point it out here, do you see how it's straddling the timeline here? I mean, let's just recognize first off that just like eating at the table as if you're just about to leave is an act of faith for Israel. Here they are. They were slaves yesterday. Most of them were born as slaves. They've gone through these plagues and none of them have gotten them out. And now they're going to have a dinner and they need to hurry up because by the time dinner is over, it's time to leave. Right? That's an act of faith. The instructions giving, when I bring you out of the land, you will remember this day, is also an act of faith, is it not? 
But at the same time, by putting it right here in the story, instead of telling the story and then telling the memorial, what does it do? It puts the remembering of the story back into the context of the story itself. Okay? What I would argue here is that what the author is doing is telescoping history. Imagine you have a telescope and written on it is today and then there's the exodus and you collapse it. Right? And now today and exodus overlap. That's what he's doing here. He's intentionally trying to put those who are practicing the Passover back into the event of the Passover, as well as during the event of the Passover, looking forward to the practice. Okay. Now here in verse 15, we're told that this is not just a single day festival, but that it's followed by an entire week of festivities. Look at verse 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you will hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. Okay, so there's a week-long feast here for seven days. He says the first one and the last one are what it calls in uh, the ESV here a holy day, or in the Old King James a holy convocation. Okay, it, it takes on the same status as a Sabbath. It's a holiday. It's a high holy day. Um, And so he says that it will be at the beginning and the end will be these big celebration days. But throughout the whole of it, you're only supposed to to do work that involves cooking for the day. And you're only supposed to eat unleavened bread. Now, we already saw that mentioned in the Passover. But now we see that that's a longer practice that's involved here. And unleavened bread just means bread without yeast. Okay, if you take communion with our church or with many other churches and you have the matzah crackers, which is like a saltine without salt, that's what we're talking about. Okay, it's bread that hasn't risen because there's no yeast in it. Okay. And so he lays this out and then he um, says in verse 17, And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. Now, this is, this is important to notice here. When he puts it on the calendar here, when does it begin? It begins with Passover. Now, the reason I point that out is because in my mind, I had this totally backwards. I thought that it was unleavened bread ramping up to Passover, but it's the opposite. I don't know why I had my wires crossed in that way, but here's, here's why that's interesting. Okay? It means that this whole festival, in terms of its significance and its symbolism, Passover is the gateway, and the unleavened bread follows. Okay? And so although there's this sense where, what does it say? It says on the first day, you're supposed to purge your house of any yeast whatsoever. Get all of the leaven out, right? You're, you're to just get it all out, and then only unleavened bread that's still starting with Passover, okay? And so, so this isn't preparatory. Sometimes we talk about preparing our hearts for communion, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the seven days of unleavened bread are not preparatory, okay? They're consequential. Now, let's continue. 
Um, verse 19, for seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leaven, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Okay, it's redundant here. It says it over and over again, and it clarifies. If somebody does eat unleavened, they're cut off, which means that they're removed. They're isolated from the rest of the festival, okay? Um, They're benched from this holy uh, week. Okay, and so, so here's what we have then. We have two festivals laid on the table and a plague, okay? The plague is the death of the firstborn. The festival is a remembering, not just of the death of the firstborn, but that uh, Israel is um, delivered from their enemies through this death, and they become a people through this death. Both of those go together. And then let's just add that the first time they keep the seven days, the festival of unleavened bread, where are they? They're on the run, they're out and they're moving. Which, by the way, uh, makes good practical sense of unleavened bread. We'll see this come up in just a minute. They are not supposed to take time to stop and wait for the bread to rise. They're on the move. Okay. But notice this. Uh, it lays this all out, talking about the future, and now it brings us back to leading up to these days, and it says in verse 21, then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out the door of his house until morning. Okay, and so here he gives the specifics in the days of the Exodus, right? The festival is laid out on paper for us, but now we see it being commanded to the people. We do find an extra detail here that the blood is applied with hyssop. That's just another thing that points to sacrifice. Okay? As we get to Leviticus, hyssop, this plant, will show up a lot and always in the same way as being a blood paintbrush in holy happenings. Okay? Um, and then it also says here that this... That this um, that this blood is to be put on the door and then they're to stay indoors. They're not to leave the house. Okay. Now, um, verse 23 tells us why. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house and strike you. And so that same distinction we saw in them remembering now is given in the instructions. The reason you're going to do this is because as God brings this judgment, he's going to skip the houses where he sees the blood. Verse 24, you shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Okay? You you can hear as we read through this, the repetition. And now the repetition is um, hardwired into tradition. When your children see this and they ask, you tell them why. 
As you have this over and over again, your sons and their sons for all generations, it says, you will remember, you will remind yourself. Why is there so much emphasis on this? Okay, It's because this has to do with the identity of Israel. The phrase, out of Egypt, is used 52 times across the scriptures. And almost every time it's used, it's used as a label for God's people. Okay? If you want to know who God's people are, they're the ones I brought out of Egypt. If you want to know who God is, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Okay? This becomes a primary description. And so this festival is a recognition of this fact. And the first, first side of this is that it's a festival of deliverance. Right? This is the Passover as in the last plague, as in with this, those who were not a people become a people. Those who were slaves become free. Those who were under the thumb of Pharaoh come out to the wilderness to serve me. But the second is what that's, that last statement implies, to serve me. This is also them being redeemed and becoming a people. This also shapes their identity. That's part of the reason why this isn't just a sacrifice, but also a feast. They don't just get saved or protected by the blood. They actually consume the sacrifice. You know what's really interesting? There's one Levitical sacrifice that is similar to the requirements here. A lamb, blood, eat the whole thing. Uh, You know what it is? It's the consecration of the Levitical priesthood. It's a little bit different. Instead of blood on the doorpost, the blood is sprinkled on the priests themselves and put on their thumb, uh, on their toe, uh, and on their ear, right? Uh, but but the, the ideas are overlapping. Now, we're not going to get here tonight, but later on, uh, God speaking is going to say to Israel that I have made you a kingdom of priests. Okay, and so this is not merely a saving, it's a consecration. God is not just bringing a people out from oppression, he's setting them apart. Okay. Um, so, verse 28, the people of Israel went and did so, and the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron as they did so. Now we get to the plague itself, verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned up Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Okay, so two things we see here. We see the plague roll out just as God had said it would. And so it says that all of Egypt is full of weeping because all of Egypt has been impacted by this. And then Pharaoh sends a message to Moses and Aaron, and and he just taps out. He surrenders. He says, that's it. Get out of here. Go. And he adds at the end here, and bless me also. I can't read this phrase without thinking of what happens with Jacob back in the book of Genesis. When Jacob is recognizing that behind him is Laban, 
and that's danger, and in front of him is Esau and 400 men, and that's danger, and he can't sleep at night, so he crosses the river by himself, and suddenly he's attacked in the middle of the night, and he wrestles with this angel till daybreak. And to, to spoil the story for you, the angel wins. Okay. At first, it seems like it's a pretty equal battle. Things are going fine. And then the angel, just with the tip of his finger, touches the hip socket of Jacob and just knocks it permanently out of joint. He dislocates his hip. It says that this, this injury is so significant that Jacob limps for the rest of his days. And so where do we find Jacob at sunrise? Holding on to the guy's ankle, this angel, as he's trying to leave and begging. And he says, I will not let you go unless, me, unless you bless me. This is a totally different posture than the Pharaoh we have known. But, especially since we're not going to get there tonight, recognize that this is a deeper evidence where you're like, maybe Pharaoh's finally getting it. He's not. Every round, we've seen a little bit more softness, a little bit closer to repentance. And here we're like, okay, that's it. There's nothing left in Pharaoh. He's finally fulfilled that Christian proverb where we say, you know, uh, the best part about hitting rock bottom is there's nowhere to look but up. But that's not really what's going on here. But nonetheless, as said, he commands them to go. Verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they should, said, we shall all be dead. And so not only does Pharaoh send them out, but all of the Egyptians are pushing them out, and, and they want it to happen now because they don't want to risk anything else. Okay, verse 34, so... The people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of Egypt so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Now, just one more side note. We've talked about that from a different angles, but I want you to recognize here that Israel doesn't leave empty-handed, obviously. And so when they leave here, they leave wealthy. In fact, uh, let's see where that phrase is. Let's see if we encounter it. Let's keep reading. Verse 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Okay, we've got to stop and address that. And so what it says here is that they all move together, and it says there's about 600,000 men. Now, counting in the Hebrew is difficult because there was no number system, okay? We make a distinction, right? First with Latin, with Roman numerals and letters, and then with the, uh, I think they're Arabic, the numerals we use now, you don't ever mistake a two for a T, right? But in Hebrew, as well as Greek, in most ancient languages, words were numbers and they used they used letters and sometimes it can be really difficult to tell if we're looking at a head count or if we're looking at another word because of their similarities on top of that um, some Hebrew measures or units of measure uh, are relatively broad and this is a big one like sometimes this just talks about cattle or a group sometimes it's translated as tens uh, And then at the end of it, we have this um, this 600, okay? So there's two things going on here. If this number is, as we read it, 600,000 men, then when you add all of the women as well as all of the extra people in Israel, we're probably talking about at least 2 million people. 
Now, everything that happens from here on out, including keeping all those people alive, involves miraculous. So we shouldn't just discount that because it's a ridiculously large people to travel through the wilderness. But there are scholars who say, well, it's possible that the crowd here is a lot smaller. In fact, the numbers they usually come up with is about 36,000 people. Okay? And it has to do with how we understand this word. Okay? Now, I would say, because it's only referred to here, we really can't understand one way or the other. I, I would stand with the 600,000, lots of scholars stand there, but the, those who argue differently, they make a good case, but we really can't know. But nonetheless here, all of Israel goes out, um, and then it tells us here uh, in verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So on top of the people of Israel, there are these non-Jewish folk, Egyptians and other foreigners in Egypt who believe in the God of Israel and decide to throw their ring in the hat with Israel, um, as well as flocks and herds and camels. Verse 39, they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provision for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years, and at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And so it, it puts the whole context of Jacob and his sons at the end of Genesis coming into Israel to this day in, in, um, in light as being 430 years. Now, when it says here on that very day, it may mean 430 years to the day, but it more likely means on the very day of Passover. Okay? It's a little bit hard to tell which, but either way here, they all go out, and it says in verse 42, it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching to keep to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generation. And so what it recognizes here is they were on high alert, right? They were eating, waiting for deliverance, and that's supposed to be maintained as part of the festival. And now we jump from the event back to the feast, verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it, It shall be eaten in one house, and you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Okay, now pause. The first thing it says here is that nobody who's visiting, that's what that word means, no foreigner who's passing through can just go, oh, while I'm in town, can I observe the Passover? The answer is always no. It says those who are part of your household, those servants that you've bought with money, as long as they've been circumcised, they can eat it. And then it reiterates again that they need to eat it in the house and not take it with them. Um, And then notice what it says here in verse 47. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. Okay, so it's not an optional festival. Verse 48, if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover of the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, that he may come near and keep it. So there's a difference between these two words. The one that we read, like I said, is a passing through type. The one here is somebody living in the midst of the land for a long duration. So if somebody's settled in Israel and they've circumcised themselves, they've entered into Uh, being a part of the people of Israel, they've been a convert, if you will, then they are allowed to observe the sacrifice. 
He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. And so it lays out here, and then there's one, one thing that I didn't comment on here, and that's the fact that it mentions here that none of the bones of the lamb should be broken. It's just thrown in here. It's just added here. Um, we'll come back to that, but I wanted to point it out. Okay, so verse 50, all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought their people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, by their hosts. Okay, and so here we see them on the move. We see them obedient. We see God faithful. All of these things. Um, Now, before we talk about the significance of the Passover, we need to get a little bit further. So chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. Okay, so now we've seen a total of three things that they're to do in the future. One, observe the Passover. Two, observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Three, consecrate all the firstborn to me. Okay, now do you see why this is directly tied to the event of the Passover? Right, because it was about the firstborn. Now, what is the significance of the firstborn? Some look at this and they go, well, because the firstborn was the one who was going to inherit everything, because that's where all your hopes and dreams were placed, he's the more valuable one. That's possible, but I want you to notice the emphasis it makes here. Notice what it says, whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel. I would say here the emphasis in firstborn is not firstborn in significance, but firstborn chronologically. The one that opens the womb. Why? Well, look at the Feast of First Fruits. Okay? The Feast of First Fruits is another festival that eventually Israel needs to observe. And at that, they bring the early harvest. They bring it in and they offer it to the Lord. And they don't do that just so God gets a piece of the action, but as a representation that the whole crop is his. Okay? The firstborns of Israel... And the redeeming of them, the consecrating of them, is a recognition that all people belong. They're just the firstborn. And so like the first fruits, they're the ones that are on the table. That helps us to understand what's really going on with Egypt. Okay? What's really going on in the Passover. The recognition is not just, um, it's not comparable to a mob boss who takes a thumb. Instead of taking all your fingers. Okay, it's not just, well, I'm just going to take a firstborn because I could take the secondborn, but I'm just going with the firstborn. No, there's a significance here. The recognition of this final plague for Egypt is one of total judgment. Not just that the firstborn are on the rack, not just that they're the only, it's a recognition that, that life and death is the hands of Jehovah. It's a recognition that all these people stand judged. And as I pointed out earlier, that includes Israel. Israel doesn't get a pass just because they're the people of God. The only reason why their firstborn don't die is because of the sacrifice. It's because of the blood. And so here he says that the firstborns from here on, both the people... And the animals, any of your sheep, any of your camels, any of your cattle, all of them, the firstborn belongs to the Lord, and it will make a distinction a little bit later on on how that's going to work. 
Um, but let's continue in verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your sons on that day, it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Now, I think you can imagine how this one comes up, right? Matzah again, right? But when the kids ask about this, once again, the meaning, the significance is going to be reiterated here. Verse 8, you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. I want you to see here when it says that it should be as a sign on your hand and on your forehead and constantly in your mouth, once again, the emphasis here is on a full body practice. Okay, it's a recognition here. Um, it, it explains the whole pa- practice of Passover, that it's like a rehearsal version of the event, even though the event has passed. They go through all of the motions of it. They live in the same steps as their ancestors. And this is, by the way, an earmark of many of the Jews' feasts. Another one, the Feast of Tabernacles. They move out of their houses and they build for themselves, uh, you know, basically a, uh, a plant tent so that they can remember what it was like to be led miraculously through the wilderness okay and so he lays this out uh, verse 10 you shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers you should and shall give it to you you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Okay, so what's the recognition here? That all the animals belong to the Lord. You can either offer a sacrifice in exchange, or the animal has to die. And then it clarifies here for sons, verse 13, halfway through, every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Okay, just to be clear here, human sacrifice isn't on the table. And so with the animals, you have the option, sacrifice or just take its life. With the, with the sons, you sacrifice. Verse 14, and when, uh, when in time comes, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of the animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be, again, as a mark on your hands or frontlets between your eyes, or by a strong, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Okay, and so we see here these three traditions all rooted in this in this reality now here's what's interesting this practice by its very nature doesn't merely look backwards 
by definition, as they go through the motions, as they eat in haste and anticipation, they look forward. Okay? That's why it's Jewish tradition when you partake of this meal to say, next year in Jerusalem. In fact, uh, sometimes it's not just, uh, not just next year in Jerusalem, but next year is free. This year is slaves, next year is free. Okay, there's this recognition that there's a greater significance here. Like I said, there's this telescoping of history, and so it's all shrunk down. And when we get to the New Testament, it's intriguing uh, that Jesus basically points to himself, and he says, all of these things, all of them point to me. And so if you read in the Gospels, it's no surprise that it's during this happening, Passover, that Jesus has what we call the Last Supper, that he institutes communion, uh, that he explains what's about to go down. Um, And so you can see this set up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, what we call the Synoptic synoptic Gospels. But in John's Gospel, although we have this kind of Last Supper arrangement, Passover isn't mentioned. It's different. But when you get to the sacrifice of Jesus in chapter 19, he takes a particular quote, and it points out that Um, Okay, first, Roman practice of crucifixion. If you're tired of them living so long, you break their kneecaps because then they can't lift up and take a breath, okay? When they come to Jesus, they're, they're ready to do that and they find him already dead. And John explains that and says, as it is written, not a bone shall be broken. And where does John point? He points here. In fact, if you want to understand the significance of the festivals of Israel from a Christian perspective, the Gospel of John is a great place to start. In the, in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus attends multiple of the festivals. In fact, Jesus attends Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication in the Gospel of John. He attends Passover. He attends the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, Tabernacles, I told you, reflects on the time of the wilderness. Note the significance of this. During the Feast of Tabernacles, it says, on the last day, the high day of the feast, Jesus stood in the temple and said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Do you know the parallel that Jesus is drawing? How was Israel fed in the wilderness? Miraculously through a rock. And Jesus effectively says, I am that rock. John writing points to Jesus on the cross and says, he is that lamb with unbroken bones. Paul makes it even more specific in the book of 1 Corinthians where he refers to Jesus as, quote, Christ our Passover, okay? And so when Jesus reinstates, or sorry, when Jesus starts the practice of communion, he actually uh, reinterprets the significance of Passover. He takes the elements and he says, this is my body that is broken. This is my blood that was shed. I am the Passover lamb. Now, what about the unleavened bread? Now, first off, we have to deal with the significance of unleaven. And to do so, you need to recognize um, that the metaphor in the Old Testament is constantly used and never explained. It's just present. The symbolism is just there. There are differing places in the New Testament that add to the use of that symbol a little bit of explanation. So Jesus, for example, speaking to his disciples, says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And then he clarifies, I'm speaking about hypocrisy. Okay? Or Paul, in that same passage where he refers to Jesus as Christ our Passover, 
refers to us living a life no longer of malice and sexual immorality, but unleavened in, uh, in truth and sincerity. Okay, and so that's the contrast he makes. Jesus also uses leaven in a, parab- in a parable. When he talks about a woman who's got a whole pile of wheat, uh, of flour, and she hides the leaven in it, and the whole thing becomes leavened. Okay. Now, some say that leaven is a, uh, is a symbol of corruption. Okay, and that's just consistent across the thing. And so the leaven of the Pharisees is this corrupting agent. Uh, the leaven in all of the flour that causes the flour all to become leaven is corruption. Definitely when Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians, he's talking about the man who is sleeping with his mother-in-law and that he needs to be rejected from the church. He says, you need to separate yourself from this leaven. You are an unleavened loaf. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole thing? But, but I think we can tone that back a little bit more and actually get a, more, a bit more clarity. The idea of, uh, of leaven consistently in every illustration is infiltration, okay, and impact, influence. It's those things. The reason I say that is, first, when Jesus tells the parable of the woman who, puts, who hides leaven in flour, uh, I have a hard time reading that as a negative thing. Jesus says in some of his parables that the future for his church, for the kingdom of God, has negative components. And so he says the wheat is sowed and an enemy comes along and sows tares. But there are two particular parables where he talks about um, what we would call growth. One is the one of the leaven and the flour all becomes leaven. The other is the one of a seed, the side, you know, a mustard seed planted, and it grows into a tree, and the birds nest in its branches. Some people interpret both of those parables as being negative, recognizing that as the kingdom of God grows, it's going to be infiltrated by evil forces, and as Jesus in his own ministry says, when the Son of Man returns, will he even find faith on the earth? Okay. I don't think that's an invalid reading of those parables, but I will just point out to you two things. First off, with a tree that grows so big the birds dwell in its branches, Jesus is taking that illustration from Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel's use of it, it is clearly a positive thing. Okay? It's, it's speaking of a whole world rule. In the same way that it talks about Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, that he'll be like a tree and all of the animals and the birds will come and dwell under the strength of that tree. It's talking about a total kingdom. In the same way, I think it's interesting that in Jesus' parable, he doesn't, say, he doesn't say that the woman was foolishly putting the leaven in the flour. And so either you've got a sneaky woman who's, you know, snuck into her neighbor's house and is planting leaven to destroy the flour, or you've got a woman who knows how to leaven flour and is doing so, okay? Either way, the emphasis would be on, in the tree parable, mustard seed to a tree is not normal, surprising, unexpected growth. And the same with the leaven, unseen growth, right? Now, I could be right or wrong about that, but... Uh, when Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, is the emphasis there merely corruption, or is it the recognition that you have to start a new loaf? And here's why I say this. Because in the unleavened bread of this festival, that seems to be what's going on here. Okay? How would you normally go about baking bread in the ancient world? 
you would take dough that was already leavened and you would add it to your unleavened new batch and that would, that would be where you build from. When Jesus refers to being aware, uh, beware of the teaching of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, is it possible that what he's saying is you can't build on where they start? It, is it possible that he's saying the same thing when he says that you can't put new wine in old wineskins? Is it possible that what Paul is saying when he says that we're to put away malice and pornea is that we can't build a new life of Christianity on the same old life? And so we need to be a new loaf. The reason why I emphasize that is because the significance of the unleavened bread, this festival of unleavened bread of seven days, is this new, set-apart, consecrated life. And once again, it's not leading up to Passover. It's not, I need to prepare myself before God can save me. It's God has saved me. Now I'm something new. Now it's something purified. Now I'm something consecrated and set apart. The last aspect here is the one of the firstborn. And as I've already mentioned, the recognition here is that God owns all people. They belong to him. They're all responsible to him. Okay? He, uh, he is their creator. And like I said, in, when we look at Egypt in this terrible destruction, we have to start from that place that from the Bible's perspective, as a human being, your life is already forfeit. Because the wages of sin is death. Okay? And so death in human life as we find it is by definition just. It's exactly what we deserve. Okay. Now that God decides to take it now instead of later, that God decides to do it today instead of tomorrow, that's, that's totally within his purview. That's all I'm saying because, because that's what sin does. When we talk about um, atonement and the word ransom as it's used in the book of Leviticus, a few times that word is actually used of fixing horizontal human relationships. And it always implies a couple of things. It implies that you've done something to break the relationship. It implies that your life is already forfeit because of that breaking of relationship, but they have made an offer, a counter offer, said instead of death, here's an option on the table. Okay. And so what we're really seeing going on here with the sacrifice is Israel doesn't get what they deserve. That's the distinction. It's what we would call mercy or grace, but it's not unfounded mercy. It's not unfounded grace. Just because grace implies a free gift doesn't mean it doesn't come at cost. And all of these lambs that were slain over the course of these repeated Passovers is pointing forward to the fact, and just get the significance of this. God passes over the firstborn sons of Israel and spares them. He doesn't pass over his firstborn son. He takes it. Not only does he take it, but he freely offers it for his people. One of the significance of this idea of firstborn is so that Israel gets the weight and the reality of what God is going to do. That it's an exchange of his son for theirs. And so the Passover is tremendously significant. Not merely and not solely because it points to Christ, but like I said, read the Gospel of John and that's the total of the festivals. Read the book of Hebrews and that's the totality of this massive, continuous, ritual 
that God creates in Israel to teach them who he is and not just remind them of what he has done, but explain to them what he is doing. And so as I mentioned last week, that's why in the transfiguration as Jesus appears with Moses and Elijah, in the book of Luke it says that they were discussing the things concerning his exodus. This is about that. It's a giant living parable. First, historically and it's happening, and then repeated and acted out in the tradition because they're not merely those who were delivered from Egypt, they're those who are awaiting deliverance. Read the book of Isaiah. Okay. And so, it becomes tremendously significant for us as well because we find ourselves in this camp, and in the same way that we see here the Exodus somewhat telescoped, And by the time we get to the prophets and we have Israel in exile, suddenly they start using Exodus language again. That telescope really comes into play. But it's the same for us as Christians. Because it's totally appropriate to recognize in one sense that Jesus has died for us and we are saved. But there's more to come. And so when we partake of communion, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we proclaim the death of Christ until he comes. It's backward-looking, but it's also future-looking. When we open up the book of Revelation and we get to, um, you know, this opening of the scroll, this reality of what's to come for the earth, you know, the, the destiny that is on the table, who is it that shows up and opens the scroll? The lamb who was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? It's, it's all of that significance comes together. And so we as Christians know what it's like to live in telescopic history, And when we partake of communion, we remember that the most significant moment in our lives happened on a cross 2,000 years ago. But we also remember that the most significant moment of our lives is still to come when Jesus finishes what he began. Now, we could stop there tonight. Um, We might as well close out chapter 13. But here we hit a pretty hard transition. Okay, They're out of Egypt The Passover has been proclaimed and explained. The final plague has happened. They've been let go. And so now he starts to talk about the significance, the aspects of uh, their time in the wilderness. But it's worth closing out this chapter um, because what's going to happen next is really the final chapter. Okay, Egypt, in terms of their enmity, still totally on the table. I hope that doesn't surprise any of you. But it's, it's coming, right? Pharaoh's going to change his mind again, and he's going to pursue Israel. And so really, I just want to set the chessboard for this final piece. Um, so let's pick up in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, let the people change their minds when they see war, or lest the people change their mind when they see war and return to Egypt. So the first thing it says here is that the way that God is leading them, we'll get to how he's leading them in a minute, but the way that he's leading them is not a straight line to the promised land. Okay? The natural way to travel from Egypt to Israel is along the way of the sea. Okay? It's actually still a primary freeway today, and it's the quickest way to get around. It goes right along the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. Okay? What he does here is he leads them out further into the wilderness, And it explains why here. It says because there's some Philistines stationed that way, and he's afraid that when they stand up against these enemies, they'll chicken out and go home. 
Now, I think as a human being, it's easy to read that and go, come on, give Israel a bit more credit. I mean, have they not just seen God miraculously deliver them? Just reserve your judgment. Uh, because, because the thing is, they're going to constantly see God's miraculous provision and complain about it and f- be fearful about it. And that's not just a them problem. This isn't just a Jewish problem. This is a human problem. Okay? And we need to keep that in mind. But notice also that what God does here is confusing. The way he's taking them doesn't make sense by observation. In fact, he's going to lead them to what we would call a cul-de-sac, a dead end. He's going to lead them right up to the Red Sea, and now they're standing in front of this huge body of water, and they start to see the dust of the chariots of the Egyptians behind them. The first thing out of their mouth is going to be, wait, why are we here? You know, they're questioning Moses' leadership. They're questioning God's care. Why? Because God took a detour, and it seems like, uh, you know, a bad detour. But God has a plan. And I don't want to over-apply this. But there is a significant truth there, okay? That just because you don't understand where God is taking you doesn't mean he doesn't know. And a lot of times he has really good, significant reasons. Like, if you go this way, you will not succeed. This route is harder, but it involves me miraculously delivering you in a way that you'll learn who I am. Okay? Why does Jacob limp the rest of his days? Because he learns with every step to rely on God as his deliverer. Same with Israel here. He's not done teaching them lessons. And so he does this. It continues on here. Um, Verse 18. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up from the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Now, just one other side note there. When Pharaoh sees this next week, that's part of the reason he attacks, because he's thoroughly convinced they don't know what they're doing. And so he goes, oh, I still have an opportunity to set things right, okay? And so this is so complex. I love this about who God is as portrayed in the scriptures. He's totally capable of multitasking. I know you think you are, but you're really not. You can just do different things in quick succession. But God is really doing a bunch of things here. He's going to teach Israel who he is, just as he promised. He's going to spare them from some significant problems, just as he promised. He's going to provoke Pharaoh one last time, and he's also going to set up one final display that he has appointed Moses, as we'll read in chapter 14. He's going to prove it, because they've heard what Moses has done, but they've never seen him hold out the staff, and they've never seen the sea part. They're about to, okay? All of that is to come. Um, Verse 19, it tells us that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you should carry up my bones with you from here. So I want you to notice here, they travel with two things. The first thing is they travel with the bones of Joseph, which have never been buried in Egypt, have just been kept in a box awaiting deliverance. Joseph, in faith, said, when you leave, take me with you. And we're told here that they they do that. And so one thing this does is it it ties up, you know, with a nice bow, the connection between how Israel got to Egypt through Joseph, and now they're leaving with Joseph. But it also speaks of profound faith, okay? Not just of Joseph, although that's evident, you know. Making death plans that involve God's promises 400 years in advance is faith. But also for the people of Israel, because if you're on the run, 
carrying, you know, a bag of bones is, is not necessarily ideal. And I want you to remember that the Hebrews hold these things both in high regard and dealing with the dead involves aspects of how you do these things, right? And so, so there's, no, there's no way this involves something that is lighthearted or desecrated. You know, this, this is serious business. This takes effort. But they know that God is going to take them there. But there's another thing that God sends with them. Not only the bones of Joseph, which speaks of God's promises, but also, verse 20, And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by the day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of cloud, uh, fire by night did not depart from before the people." Now, this is going to become a standard feature of the next 40 years of Israel's history. But basically, what we see here is that God goes before the people in a visible way. Okay? And so, they, they significantly are aware of the fact that God is with them, and then because it's going before them, that God is leading them. Okay? And what it says here is, at, in, during the day, it's just this big, smoky pillar very easy to spot, Uh, and at night it's this fiery pillar, also easy to spot, and it mentions here that at this time they're traveling both day and night, okay, they're in a hurry to get where they're going, and so God is leading them. Now it's interesting, the Psalms tell us here uh, that the, the cloud doesn't just go out before them, but it actually provides covering from the sun. And so, so there's more going on here that's mentioned here, but the idea, once again, is that God is their leader and their protector, and he's present, okay? And so this is just setting up the pieces, not just for the Red Sea that we'll observe in just a second, although the cloud will have a significant role to play in that, but also in the rest of the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and all the way through Deuteronomy, This is what it looks like to follow God in the wilderness. Let's pray. God, we cannot read this passage tonight without recognizing that the author finds these things to be tremendously significant. Significant enough to change the way we think about time. So now this is our New Year's Day. This is our new January. Significant enough to make sure that it's repeatedly practiced and lived out and remembered and taught. Significant enough that it, uh, that it impacts not just our lives in, in festivals, but he says that the firstborn, with everyone that's born, we're to remember the exodus. With everyone that opens the womb, we're going to redeem him and recognize the reality. And all of these things paint the picture of the significance for us. You spared the firstborn of Israel, but you did not spare your only son. We stand before you deserving of death, but you freely offer us life because your son died in our place. And you call us to live out of a new life, separating from the old lump of how we lived, setting aside uh, our old selves and, and recognizing that in Jesus Christ we are a new creation, that we were slaves and now we are sons, that we were out in Egypt and now you're bringing us to something better. 
And so I pray, Lord, that this significance would play out, play out in a different way for us, that it wouldn't just be rituals and remembering, Lord, but, um, but that we would recognize that these things we're reading about are the shadows and the substance is in Christ Jesus. That as much as they rehearsed these things, we are experiencing the full performance. We thank you for our exodus. We ask that you continue to deepen our understanding of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.